What's up, this your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. This episode is brought to you by Navy Federal Credit Union. At Navy Federal, it's been the mission to help the military community for over 90 years. And not just help them, but do everything to make sure they not only grow, but flourish. That's why Navy Federal Credit Union has all kinds of great savings and investment options, like share certificates with sky-high rates. So don't hesitate. Start growing your finances today with a variety of savings and investment options. Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. Picasso knows your vacation home is your best home. It's the place that brings family and friends together. It's where you're the best version of yourself. Picasso makes it easy to co-own a luxury vacation home in amazing locations. Listings start at 200K for one-eighth ownership. Picasso does all the work for you. Luxury furnishings, maintenance, billing, scheduling, and more. And you can resell on Picasso's marketplace anytime, historically for a 10% gain. Visit Picasso to see thousands of listings. That's P-A-C-A-S-O dot com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. Welcome to Forward Thinking. Hello and welcome to Forward Thinking, the podcast that looks at the future and says, but it's the Shkadov thrust that really drives you insane. I'm Joe McCormick. And I'm Lauren Vogelbaum. And our regular host, Jonathan Strickland, is not with us today because he is out in the field on assignment. Yes, doing things that we cannot tell you about yet. No, uh, I would say that he's out discovering the amazing technology of tomorrow, but really what he's probably doing is posing for selfies with very muscular men. Uh, yes, that is entirely likely. Uh, you can watch the HowStuffWorks.com channel on YouTube to find out more about that in a few weeks. 
Maybe. But at any rate. Uh, yeah, so today we wanted to address a listener request episode. Uh, our listener, Keith, on Facebook has asked us to talk about all kinds of topics, and we can't do them all at once, so we decided to pick the coolest, weirdest one of the bunch. Being Stellar Engines. Stellar Engines. Now, I know what the gearheads in the audience are thinking. Cadillac V8, right? The classic Cadillac V8. Totally stellar, out of this world, right? Yeah, oh man, they they don't make them like that anymore. Or I don't know, they might still make those. Spoiler alert, I don't know anything about cars. (laughs) Um, But no, Uh, the use of the word stellar here actually refers to the, the more classical sense as in stars. Yes, stars turned into engines put to our own devious uses. What would a star-based engine even be? Um, as it turns out, it's real complicated, y'all. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and it's really weird and really, really cool. This is one of the coolest ideas I think we've looked at in a while. And it's also kind of cool because it's not even close to reality. So this is going to be one of our more on the speculative end episodes. Uh, yeah, this is not one of those like 20 to 40 year kind of things that we usually wind up talking about on the show. This is so far out there. 20, uh, 20 to 40,000 years yeah, in the yeah. optimistic sense. Sure. Uh, so, okay, let us talk about interstellar travel. Sure. Well, we all know that one day we may want or even need to travel to another solar system. And but I th- what's wrong with our solar system, Joe? Well, you know, it's just... Don't be dissing our solar system. You get bored being in the same place for a long time. I know, after a while, just seeing the same planets going around and around over and over. D- don't you ever get tired of Mars? Yeah, yeah, you get that interstellar wanderlust. Well, it's not just boredom and... Uh, and discontent that might make us want to look to another solar system in our galaxy. <laughs> That's solar ennui. <laughs> Over time, our sun is going to get into some trouble. Have you heard about this? Uh, well, I mean, it's pretty much a bad seed. Yeah. Well, okay. So today we have our, our healthy yellow sun, the one that makes Superman as powerful as he is. Mm-hmm. Not all suns are like this. And in fact, suns have a lifetime just like living organisms do. They, they sort of... Uh, increase and decrease in luminosity at different periods of their life. And, and eventually they, they use up all of their stellar stuff. Right. The fuel that they that they fuse, the, the hydrogen that they're fusing to be that healthy yellow star, mm-hmm. you know, it's not infinite. So this can be bad for planets orbiting the star. In October 2012, there was a NASA blog post that was explaining that a team of astronomers had recently discovered evidence through a ground-based telescope that there was this red giant star called BD plus 48 740, and it was swelling to completely engulf a planet formerly in its orbit. So how did they figure this out? I thought this was really interesting. They realized the star had, quote, the fumes of a scorched planet in its atmosphere, unquote. So the star ate a planet, and we figured it out by smelling the star's breath. Uh, telescopically, nonetheless, yeah. <laughs> right, so yeah, they smelled its breath with spectroscopic analysis, so they, you know, looked at the colors, uh, the luminosity coming off of the sun, and they can look at what materials are, are in that based on that data, and they found that the star contained lots of the element lithium. Ooh, yeah, that's not something that you usually find in a red giant. Right, that, that, that would be a very weird thing to find a bunch of in a, in a star like that, because typically lithium gets destroyed inside stars over a long period of time, and red giants tend to be old. 
But you might find lithium in a star if it's uh, if it's being produced by the consumption of another big chunk of matter. And that's what they figured out happened. There had been another planet there that probably spiraled into this red giant as it heated and swole on up. And it was like, nom, 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 nom. <laughs> and it ate the planet. It, it quote, ingested the planet. Huh. Uh, okay, so th- this is eventually going to happen to our sun and our planet. And I'm not talking about, like, in the next 20 to 40 years. Uh, th- this is this is a few billion years down the line, yes? Right. One of the researchers who found the evidence of this said that the same kind of fate could be in line for the inner planets of our solar system within about 5 billion years. Now, five billion years, it's it's hard to get too worked up about five billion years personally. I worry a lot, but yeah, I'm not I, I can't actually be worried about that. Uh but at least we, we may worry for, you know, our descendants or the or our you know, the robots built by our descendants that or, take over the planet. Or or the distant future progeny of zebras. I I, I care about future zebras. Oh zebra babies. I know. Of the future. Right? Right. Well, uh, unfortunately for the zebra babies, they won't be able to wait for the sun to all out eat the earth. The oh, way yeah. This yeah. Started. Uh, bad, bad stuff will happen way before that actual consumption goes down. <laughs> right. right. So, yeah, as the intensity of solar radiation bombarding the earth slowly gets stronger and it just will steadily over time. Earth will at some point become unable to sustain life. So in 2013, there was a three dimensional climate model devised by the, and I apologize to French speakers out there, but I'm going to try to say it, the Laboratoire de Meteorologie Dynamique. Dynamique? Yeah. Uh, Laboratoire? That... I don't know. <laughs> At any rate, yes. Yeah, so this climate model that they came up with uh, predicted that the solar radiation will increase the Earth's surface temperature enough to boil the oceans and cause Earth to lose all its liquid water in about one billion years. Ooh, that, that is a much tighter deadline. Yeah, 20% of, of yeah. the sun eating us. Okay, so before then. Gotta find a plan B. Mm-hmm. We, we can't just wait it out. So a pretty straightforward one would be to move, to move to a nicer neighborhood, find a new planet in another solar system and get all of the humans there or all of the zebra people of the future. The or robots, all, et cetera. All of our, yeah, our robot, robot grandchildren. Yeah. But moving all of these organisms to a new planet might not be so easy. So we've talked about the problems with interstellar travel. Unless you've got a spaceship that goes the speed of light or faster, and, and we all know the problems with that, you know, Einstein's special relativity says you, you can't go faster mm-hmm. than the speed of light. We may someday come up with some crazy way to bend that rule, but we shouldn't bank on it. Right now, it seems kind of like a law of physics. Yeah. So unless you can get pretty near the speed of light, the journey between stars becomes prohibitively long, like probably thousands of years. Uh, the nearest star to Earth is the tiny red dwarf star Proxima Centauri, which is in the, the Alpha Centauri system. It's about 4.2 light years or about 39.9 trillion kilometers Oof. away. Mm-hmm. At the speed Voyager left the solar system, uh, which is around 37,000 miles per hour, I see slight variations on that. It would be about, uh, you know, almost 60,000 kilometers per hour. Uh, 
which is the quickest that anything uh, that has survived its journey thus mm-hmm. far has ever moved. Right. Yeah. And so at that rate, it would take. That we've a, created. Yeah, yeah. It would take about 80,000 years to reach Proxima Centauri. Uh, that's, I mean, I guess if you're talking in the scheme of, of a billion years, that's not so long. Right. But, right. but tightening that up would be preferable, especially if that's just the journey to. A kind of crappy star, if we're being really honest. Yeah, it's this little red dwarf. I mean, you've got to, you, you can't just go to any star with a spaceship. You need to find a planet to sustain life, right? Mm-hmm. And not all planets are suitable for habitation. In fact, most probably aren't. It could be too hot, too cold, just in a constant bath of radiation. They might be a gas giant that's full of radiation itself. And of course, you can't walk around on it. A good Earth is really hard to find. There's the other problem of once you're on the way, how do you keep yourself alive? How do you keep supplying yourself with food, energy, air, protection from radiation in interstellar space? You could work on building sort of generation-sustaining starships uh, with ways of continuously creating new energy, maintaining an Earth-like environment, etc. But then you're almost talking about having to build a second Earth to travel with you. And and we're already on this perfectly good Earth. If the problem is the sun... Why not find a new sun? Why not find a new sun? So the idea here becomes that we could take everything we have with us when we travel to a new new solar system, literally every single thing we have, including the Earth, and for the journey at least, including the sun. Because we are using it (laughs) as an engine. An engine, you say. An engine, I say. Actually, I didn't say it at all. Well, no, this idea comes from others who who have come before us. I mean, yeah, I I literally just said it out loud, but it wasn't my idea. (laughs) Who were physicists who had incredibly strange and very cool ideas. So where does this idea of a stellar engine come from? Well, the original paper we want to look at is something from October of 1987. And it was when the, the Russian physicist Leonid Shkadov proposed a really interesting idea at the 38th Congress of the International Astronomical Federation meeting in Brighton in the UK. And he said, what if you could turn an entire solar system into a vehicle? Or in his own words, quote, a thruster for solar system motion control. How on earth would that work? (laughs) Or how on the galactic plane would that work? Yeah, we don't even have words for this context. (laughs) It's really strange. So to clarify, the solar system is not motionless now. Oh, no, of course not. It's moving all over the place. Well, not all over the place. I mean, there's there's a system of movement with... Which it follows. Yeah, well, just like the planets in our solar system are in orbit around the sun, our solar system is in orbit around the center of gravity of the Milky Way galaxy. And, of course, the Milky Way galaxy itself is moving. But we're talking about controlling the trajectory of motion within the galaxy. Okay. So what did he have in mind? Here's the basic setup that Shkadov envisioned. So you create a spherical arc mirror Basically, a giant curved mirror that's a concave one Mm -hmm. facing our sun on the inside. So imagine sort of a giant contact lens with the inside of it, the curved inner side being a reflective mirror surface. And that's pointed toward the star, in mm-hmm. this case, our sun. Uh, like, 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 putting a, like putting a big bowl a, a few feet away from a grape. 
Yeah, yeah, sure. So this mirror would have a couple of forces acting on it. It would have gravity pulling it toward the sun. Uh, the sun's gravity pulling it towards yeah. the sun, right? And uh, since it'd be a, a, a very large structure, it would also have some gravitational force of its own. Mm -hmm. uh, then it would also have radiation pressure pushing it away like a solar sail. We've talked about solar sails before. Uh, yeah, yeah, because the, the radiation, the electromagnetic radiation from the sun does have a pushing force. Yeah, we don't really feel it normally because it's a very relatively tiny force, mm -hmm. but on a huge reflective surface in space, it makes a difference. Totally. The sunlight pushes. So the mirror would become settled in a place where these forces equalize, the, mm -hmm. the solar radiation pushing the mirror out and the gravity pulling it in. But solar radiation would reflect off of the mirror instead of radiating out into space like it normally does. And it reflects back in the direction it came from toward the sun. Mm -hmm. Shkadov's idea was that uh, you could use this system to control or at least help direct the motion of the sun and with the sun, the rest of the solar system. Now, <laughs> Lauren and I spent a lot of time staring at some math. We totally didn't understand. Oh, to see so if much we could... <laughs> time. We're, we're not we're not astrophysicists, y'all. Yeah. To see if we could say a little bit more about the way this thrust is generated. But or, if it or... is not abundantly clear, we are not astrophysicists. And suffice to say, the experts know what they're talking about. You could, in theory, use one of these things, they say, to perturb the motion of a star within the galaxy. Yes, and that is the official terminology that I've seen people use, perturb. Right. Which I think is just a really great verb to, to apply to the sun. Like you're I could, annoying I it. could perturb the sun. <laughs> perturb the heck out of that sun. Well, the sun started it. I mean, <laughs> we didn't tell it to swell into a red giant and eat the earth. Uh, All right. So so, uh, so so we've got these di this this dish. And uh, this this mirror and all of this is creating thrust in a direction mm -hmm. to move the sun, to move the sun and the solar system with it. Right. So we would call this a class A stellar engine or a Shkadov thruster. And it would be sort of like a giant steering wheel for the solar system, driving it where in the galaxy we want it to go. And the movement would be really slow. We so need to slow. stipulate that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, very, very slow. The obvious advantage, though, would be that we wouldn't have to leave the Earth, our home, or the sun, our energy source, until we arrived at our destination in another solar system. And then the final idea of this, the, the sort of ultimate conclusion, is that we could plan the movement of our Shkadov thruster just so that Earth could be deposited into a circular orbit around another star. Uh, yeah, once you get the solar system close enough to a new solar system, you just kind of let it get nudged in. Right. You line it up just so that the Earth gets captured by the gravity of the new star, and then we're back in business, and we can keep making new zebra children cities. Yeah, zebra robot children cities. <laughs> Indeed. Um, now, I know this sounds super sci-fi, and to be it honest, it really is. Yeah. I mean, we don't have the capability of building anything like this right now, but... It is an idea worth taking seriously, even just for the very long view of the, the survival of our species or mm -hmm. maybe, you know, our, our, our terrestrial organic form, whatever mm -hmm. that might be. 
There is a great article that we were looking at in Popular Mechanics from July of last year that actually examines how you would build a Shkadov thruster. And uh, that was really helpful. Yeah, yeah, because there's so much that you have to take into consideration here. Um, like, like, where do we get the material for creating a mirror of, of this size and capacity? Right, because exactly how big is the mirror we're talking about here? Um, yeah, you know, just hundreds of millions of miles across. <laughs> Uh, it, it would have to be in, in diameter greater than the distance from the earth to the sun. Um, and it would, which would probably mean that it would have to weigh some sextillion or septillion, like even up to septillion pounds. And if you need a concept of what that's like, I, I'm crossing concepts a little bit here, but that's, that's roughly the mass, uh, of like Pluto or the moon or Mercury or Mars. It's a little bit, it's a little bit, it weighs a little bit less than Earth yeah. itself. So so we, we don't really have like a factory that could build this. We do not have a spare Earth to, to, <laughs> to, to create this mirror out of. But hey, we do have those other planets I just mentioned. Oh, no. Are you talking about dismantling a planet and making a megastructure out of it? I'm not talking about that. <laughs> But scientists certainly are. Yeah, yeah. You, you'd uh, you'd have to build it out of something um, kind of light and and foil like, relatively on the on the scale of metals. Something like hematite. Okay. Would be really good for that. That's and, sort of like an iron ore. Yeah, yeah. And you could mine something like that out of the planet Mercury. And so if you basically disassembled Mercury, and and I can still not hear that word without just thinking like, no, disassemble, Stephanie. Um, but. <laughs> But yeah, if you, if you took apart Mercury and used the entire planet to build this this sail, this mirror, then you could make it work. Wow. I and, mean, that is crazy. But then again, we are we are talking about sort of a, a multi-generational project that would have to be pretty far in the future. Uh, yeah. And we would miss Mercury. I'm sure it would mess up astrology a whole lot. Um, oh, no. I know. Right. Um, but wait a minute. No, no, no. No more Mercury in retrograde. That's right? a bad thing, right? Isn't yeah. that a thing people don't like? Yeah, no, it's terrible. It's like, ah, oh, I lost my keys. Mercury did it. Yeah. <laughs> Something to that extent, yeah. Um, <laughs> and and so so it sounds crazy, but um, it's actually a lot less crazy than trying to like catch a lot of asteroids or something like that, right? To do the same job. Um, and and of course, by when I said that you would be disassembling Mercury, I did not mean Joe, and I didn't mean the the, the royal you. This would probably be a job for robots. Yeah, yeah, it would have to be some kind of a massive fleet of robots doing this autonomously. I mean, it mm -hmm. just really wouldn't make sense to go try to put people on Mercury to mine its surface. Uh, no, that would go poorly for people. So we're talking now essentially about mining Mercury to create all this ore to turn into a thin sheet of reflective foil to put in space in a static position at the sun to reflect all this radiation to generate thrust to move the sun. Yeah. Okay, okay, I'm with you so far. What are some things we might have to worry about when doing this just to, you know, to, concerns we should keep in mind while building a giant space mirror? Um, well, I, I would want to make sure that we take pains to, to not, you know, either freeze or fry the Earth with this mirror thing. Because uh, the, the, the yeah. thing is, is that the, the mirror would probably be somewhere near the orbit of the Earth mm -hmm. in order to make the materials stable. Um, we wouldn't want to melt the mirror either. That would be pretty bad. Um, uh, 
and and having it relatively nearby could potentially cause problems with um the the amount of of solar radiation that continues to hit the earth which we want you know we enjoy having sunlight here it kind of drives the entire life cycle on this planet or uh conversely we wouldn't want kind of extra radiation from the mirror to start hitting the earth and fry us completely yeah i've seen some different considerations that different thinkers have had on Mm -hmm. what sort of the final heat situation would be with one of these in place because there are different ideas about where you can put it relative to the sun and the earth Mm -hmm. another thing i think we should consider is how fast could this thing actually go and what are the conditions that would control its its speed capabilities yeah we we mentioned this earlier and and i wanted to put into into actual numbers exactly how slow this thing would be going um because okay okay if the sun is already moving at some 500,000 miles per hour um that's an incredibly rough estimate you guys um <laughs> the, the the first few million years of um, Shkadov thrust could only change our trajectory a little bit. Um, one thermodynamicist uh, by the name of Viral Batescu, or something to that extent, I'm sorry I didn't look this up before the podcast, um, he, he's, he's from the uh, Polytechnic University of Bucharest in Romania, says it could take 200 million years for us to change the trajectory of the sun by as much as 130 light years. And, and that's that's on the generous end. He he also said that it might be by as little as 30 light years. That's I mean, that's a big window. But then again, 30 light years is a long way. Uh, I saw that note you made and then I was trying to figure out, well, what's within 30 light years? Uh, I found a website called Soul Station. I, I'm not familiar with the source, so I don't know if it's entirely accurate, but at least based on what they say. There are 150 celestial objects within a 20 light year radius of Earth. So a lot of these are brown dwarfs and stuff that really wouldn't be useful to us. But it listed at least two A sequence and seven G sequence stars. So I don't know. I mean, I I could see even within 30 years, you could get to a reasonable number of objects out there. 30 30 light years. Yeah, yeah. Um, Over the I mean, it's just just that number. 200 million years. Yeah is a number that I have a hard time comprehending. Yeah. Uh, it's also worth thinking about it in the context of one billion years until the oceans boil. So sure. it's, you know, it's zebra children. Got to keep them in <laughs> mind. <laughs> we can't forget the zebra children of the, the future. zebra children. Okay. All right. They'll um, have such huge eyes. They, they will. They'll be adorable. Um Okay, so 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 all of these problems are kind of sad news for anyone who is hoping to build one of these mirrors like next week. Um, but they also do offer a really promising implication, and that is that any alien civilization that could have possibly created one of these could be pretty easy for us to spot. That's right. So there was a recent paper by Duncan H. Forgan of the University of St. Andrews And he talked about the possibility of looking for alien stellar engines as evidence of alien life. So we talked a little bit about looking for aliens in our episode on the Kardashev scale from January of 2014. But here's uh, Forgan's idea. Mm -hmm. It goes pretty much like this. We already have astronomical projects that are looking for the transit of exoplanets across other stars in the galaxy. So you have a telescope. 
stare at the light produced by a star, and then you try to observe changes in that light produced by the star to see if it would be consistent with a planet passing between us and the star and blocking part of its light. Right. Of course, an alien civilization that built a megastructure like a Shkadov thruster might also be detectable in the same kinds of data. So in a paper called On the Possibility of Detecting Class A Stellar Engines Using Exoplanet Transit Curves, Forgan tries to model the kinds of light curves we would see if we were observing exoplanet transit on a star that had a Shkadov thruster. Uh, so he, though the probability he rates of finding evidence for one of these things based on the methods and data we have available now is pretty low, we might have a more optimistic outlook once we can pair this strategy with other directed tools for SETI. Hmm, yeah. Anyway, I, I thought that was pretty cool. Even if we can't save our own planet with a Shkadov thruster, we could at least maybe use it to know that there are other civilizations out there that are more proactive than we are. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, uh, although, speaking of saving our planet, I wanted to discuss a couple other reasons that we might have to do such a thing. Right. So even maybe before our planet swells into a red giant or boils the oceans in a billion years, we might really need to move our sun around. Yeah, yeah. Um, there are a couple relatively smaller reasons for this. Um, so, Joe, have you have you ever been worried about an asteroid or a comet hitting the Earth? Uh, that is exactly the reason I've been hollowing out a cavern under my house to dwell in after the big one hits. We've got canned food. We've got lots of VHS tapes of sci-fi <laughs> movies from the 80s. I think we'll be good. A zebra? Yeah? Yeah. Okay. Well, I've got a new source for your paranoia. Okay. Interstellar gas and dust clouds. Ooh. Uh, it sounds dusty. It's, <laughs> it sounds not terrifying at all, actually. But what's important to keep in mind here is that, okay, space is not all space yeah. not all empty space there's some stuff out there there's lots of stuff in addition to stars and planets and all of that there are these giant clouds of gas and dust that are floating around in the interstellar medium between star systems these things could count for as much as 15 percent of the matter visible um you know, visible across the electromagnetic spectrum not that, like you can see with the naked eye right um in our milky way galaxy and according to one Michael Richmond of the Rochester Institute of Technology, that's some 10 billion suns worth of stuff. Yikes. Bunches of stuff. That stuff in question is mostly molecular hydrogen with just a tad bit of helium and uh, dust, for, for for lack of a better word. Just, just little microparticles of things. Mm -hmm. um, and yeah, none of that is terrifying. Um, but if we happened to go through one... It would be bad through one a cloud of through, this, through you a mean? cloud of this stuff. It would be bad, yes. And if you are shaky on the whole good bad thing, um, let me explain bad. With a shout out to Jeffrey Winters, who wrote a really good piece for Discover Magazine back in 2008 called "How a Cloud of Space Dust Could Wipe Out Life on Earth." Oh, yay! Yay! Okay, let's hear it. <laughs> All right, so the solar system is surrounded by the heliosphere, right? Mm -hmm. um, that's that thing that the Voyager satellites passed through. Well, a while ago, but we found out about it recently. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it's a protective wall of solar wind, which is plasma that's radiated out by the sun. Um, it, it's magnetic at the edges, and it helps keep the planets in our system safe from, from interstellar particles and radiation. 
And and the thing is, uh, astronomers think that we've been in a really clear section of interstellar space for the past five million years or so. Um, if we were to hit one of these clouds of gas and dust, it would bombard our heliosphere, pushing it from from way outside of Pluto's orbit down into the orbit of, of like Saturn or Uranus. Whoa. Yeah. Um, and we're not super sure what effects this would have on Earth. Um, the, the heliosphere would probably still protect us from a bunch of this cloud, but some of it would probably reach the Earth. And the, the hydrogen that, that composes most of the cloud could start seeping into our atmosphere and reacting with our oxygen, which would change our air supply for the worse for us, certainly. Um, and furthermore, more cosmic rays would be hitting the planet, which would endanger, um, you know, our, our stuff and our people in orbit and also greatly increase our radiation exposure here on the ground. Mm. So bad times. We do not want this to happen. Um, unfortunately, these clouds are really hard for us to spot. We do know that there is one less than a trillion miles away, which is uh, approximately 250 times the distance from Earth to Pluto, if that helps. Mm -hmm. It doesn't really help me, to be honest, but it's a good number. Um <laughs> Uh, which, which which means that we could collide with the sucker in only 2,500 years. Oh, that's pretty soon. That's that's we way sooner. Probably can't build a Shkadov thruster. Hey, don't don't underestimate future human zebra okay. robots. Okay, maybe maybe yeah. 2,500 years. Sure. Yeah. Get that fleet out there. Tear down Mercury. Yeah. Nobody cares about Mercury. Get it done, right? Right. Okay. So we could at least say maybe maybe possible. Assuming yeah. all this works as as planned, that would be a very good reason to have one of these things active. Oh, but then again, you know, it, it does take a while to get it started moving in the in the direction. So I don't know. But at least maybe we, we can have one in time to dodge the next one. Yeah. And furthermore, there's other stuff out there that we that we do need to be tangentially concerned about, such as close passage to another star system. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So so astronomers uh, whose job it is to do this kind of thing have been projecting nearby stars paths out into the past and future some 10 million years each because. Why not? I, of course. Yeah. You want um, to know where stars are going to be. Uh huh. And they found that in the past 10 million years, it's pretty likely that no stars have passed closer than three light years away from us. Okay. But in only 25,000 years, uh, Proxima Centauri and Alpha Centauri could both be inside that range. Ooh. Yeah. Um, so what happens when a star gets close to us? Well, we're not sure. But it could be close enough to disturb another feature of interstellar space, which is the conjectured Oort cloud, mm. which is the uh, uh, supposedly is the icy band loosely connected to the solar system and is where comets come from. Right. It's what goes way, way out there into the darkness and we can't see the stuff in it always. And... Yeah. Yeah. It's it's maybe about halfway between us and Proxima Centauri right now. So yeah. it's, it's pretty far out there. But but comets can can come down into into the range of the solar system. And the disturbance of this cloud could send a lot more comets down into the solar system. Sort of like just kicking sand into our face. Yeah, basically. Except it could be deadly sand. Deadly comet sand. Man. Yeah, giant, giant Especially of deadly sand. because it sounds like comic sands. 
I'm sorry I said that, but let's let's keep it and move on. <laughs> I agree. There there are also other than that um uh brown dwarf stars to worry about which are also pretty difficult to detect and uh, at least hundreds of of them are within 100 light years of us. Um in the 1980s there was even a theory that Earth's periodic mass extinctions are caused by a star in, in loose companionship with the sun that swings by every like 32 million years or so. Huh. I, I don't think that's correct, actually. I bet most scientists agree these days that that, that, that was wrong. Um, they were calling the star Nemesis. Oh, yeah, Nemesis. Yeah, yeah. I've heard it. Wait, a Nemesis? I thought Nemesis was also a planet. Or is that Planet X? Nibiru? I am not sure. I, I do know that Star Trek Nemesis was a thing that happened. We need to get Ben and Matt in here to talk about all of the secret planets they don't want us to know about. <laughs> well, well, not that Ben and Matt don't want us to know about, but that right. they... They don't want us to know. <laughs> um, yeah. So so there are many, many reasons why, you know, and all, all of these potential dangers will probably come into clearer focus as our uh, de- detection equipment improves. And, be, yeah. and, and as we crunch some of those numbers that we have al- already received from some of our telescopes and et cetera. But, uh, it, yeah, I, I think I think it's safe to say that we have totally solid reason for wanting to be able to move our solar system. And if a Shkadov thruster is the way to do it, I say, let's start building today. Yeah. You know, how do we get those robots to Mercury? Uh, let's, let, let's get a team of people on it. Somebody's got to build the robots first. Well, one thing I, I do want to be clear about is that the kind of stellar engine we've been talking about is not the only kind of stellar engine. In fact, as you uh, probably heard us saying it's a class A stellar engine. There are whole other types of megastructures that have been proposed for harnessing a huge amount of the energy of a star. Mm-hmm. And hopefully we can, in other episodes, talk about some of those, like you may have heard of Dyson Spheres, yes. which have a great name. They have <laughs> nothing to do with vacuum cleaners. They have everything to do with cosmic power. Real cosmic power. Yes. Uh, and yeah, yeah, those those are class B and there's also a class C. And we have already talked for quite a while today. So I think that we're going to leave that for another day. Uh, but in the meanwhile, if you would like to hear anything specific from us uh, other than about more stellar engines, uh, let us know. You can write us an email at fwthinking at howstuffworks.com or you can find us on Facebook, Twitter or Google Plus. Our screen names there are some iteration of FW Thinking. You can check out fwthinking.com for lots more video and podcast and written content. Uh, You can also chastise me for using the word content out loud. And we hope to hear from you. And you will hear from us again very soon. For more on this topic and the future of technology, visit forwardthinking.com. Brought to you by Toyota. Let's go places. 
Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cb for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. This is Malcolm Gladwell from Revisionist History. eBay Motors is here for the ride. With some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Brake kits, LED headlights, whatever you need, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Asking the right questions can greatly impact your future, especially when it comes to your finances. So if you're looking for a financial advisor you can trust, certified financial planner professionals are committed to acting in your best interest. That's why it's got to be a CFP. Find your CFP professional at letsmakeaplan.org. Are you still searching for your perfect place to call home? Well, now is the time to buy at Fisher Homes. If you're looking to move in before the end of 2024, May could be your last opportunity to start building your dream home and close before the year's end. If you're hoping to move in even sooner, Fisher Homes also has homes that are move-in ready and waiting for you, where you can start enjoying the benefits of homeownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with a new home advisor today at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Hey guys, you know what this playground could use? A wine country, huh? A redwood forest would be cool. Ski slopes! Wait! Did we just invent California? Discover why California is the ultimate playground at visitcalifornia.com.